Luke chapter 19 this morning. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's. I was talking with Charlie downstairs this morning, and Jesus is on his way on Palm Sunday. He's coming into Jerusalem about for the very last time. And we know why he's coming to Jerusalem for the very last time, and that's to be crucified. And here's where I was talking with Charlie. If you think about what Jesus was putting to end at his crucifixion, we're talking about the old sacrificial system. None of this is in my notes. This isn't, this isn't part of the sermon. I'm just I'm letting you know what me and Charlie were talking about this morning. Uh, there was the old sacrificial system where there's bulls and goats and turtle doves slaughtered every day for years, centuries, multiple millennia, every day, awash with blood. If you want to get a little glimpse of it in your own life, I've told you about this before, you can go online and go to bullsandgoatscalculator.com. Uh, I think it's .org. Uh, look up Bulls and Goats Calculator, and it's going to, you type in your birthday when you were born, and it's going to tell you how many to this day animals would have been slaughtered on your behalf. And it's breathtaking. That's assuming you're just an average sinner. If you're sinning ex- extraordinarily, it would be even more. And every day this is happening. And as Charlie and I were discussing, I don't know how they'd ever keep up. And the fact is, they couldn't possibly have kept up. If they were doing it the way God described, there's no way physically possible to have slaughtered all those animals. But Jesus, in one sacrifice that was so magnificent, covered everything that was impossible at that point. What a thing to think about. We're going to Luke chapter 19 this morning. Uh, We're going to start at verse 28, and we're looking at uh, Luke's account of the triumphal entry. And actually, if you want to get nitpicky, Luke never actually describes any entry, uh, whether triumphant or otherwise. Uh, What Luke describes mostly is the approach to the city. But what Luke does describe, and why I wanted to go to Luke today, something Luke describes that no one else does is Jesus' lament over the city of Jerusalem that we're going to see in verses 41 to 44. While you turn there, do you mind if I have a word of prayer? Lord, we do thank you for all that you've done for us. You've redeemed us. You bought us out of the slave market of sin. You've given us new life because of your resolute obedience. Obedience even unto the cross. Your blood atoned for my sins in a way that no blood, no bull or any goat ever could, no matter how many. We thank you for that. Guide us through your word here today. Show us by your Holy Spirit how we can be more like you and how we can share that blessed gospel with this world around us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So, 
we, hopefully by now we're all in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to pick up at verse 28. I'm going to read our passage. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 28, it says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before, ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which, if you're entering, you'll find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they that are sent went away, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose you the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they sat Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he had come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which were belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. So that's what we're looking at here today. Jesus approaching Jerusalem for the very last time. He's been into Jerusalem several times throughout his career. And there's some audacity to this whole situation as Jesus comes. Jesus coming to Jerusalem. Remember the scene here. The Jewish authorities are hostile to him at this point. They've already given instructions. If you look back in uh, Luke, a couple of chapters, you can see that they've given instructions to anyone who knows where Jesus is, needs to inform them so that he can be arrested. You can see that particularly clearly. Let's, let's take a look. We've got lots of time this morning. Let's go over to John chapter 11. Verse 57. It says, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man might knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. It says the chief priests and the Pharisees. We're talking about these guys were united. It was the Sadducees and the Pharisees were united in one task. They both wanted to take out Jesus. Ordinarily, these guys wouldn't sit across a table from each other. 
They're united in one thing. Anybody who knows where this Jesus is, let us know. He's not going into friendly territory. But rather than cringing in fear, oh boy, they, I can't go into Jerusalem again. It's Passover time. We're all supposed to report to Jerusalem for the Passover. I can't go back in there because they want to kill me. Jesus didn't cringe in fear. Jesus comes to Jerusalem very openly, and as we're going to see, very triumphantly. He didn't sneak in a back door. When, as we look ahead to verse 48, if you want to, uh, in fact, let's do that. Let's look ahead. To, uh, we're looking at verse 48. He says, and they could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Jesus was so popular with the people that the Jewish leaders couldn't take any action against him. Even though they wanted to, the Sadducees and Pharisees were united, but the people were so cheering him on, they couldn't do anything. But even though they can't do anything against him, there's still an underlying bitterness, you see. And we need to realize the courage that it would take both Jesus and the disciples to come to Jerusalem so brazenly. So let's look at verse 28 again. It says, And when he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. Apparently, Jesus left Jericho just as soon as he was finished telling the parable of the pounds, which is earlier in this chapter. We've seen that. I'm not going to go over it right now. So he leaves Jericho heading to Jerusalem. And when we look carefully at this verse, we see that Jesus walked ahead of the disciples. He went before, it says. He's walking ahead of the disciples. He took the lead in what was going to be the climax of his and their lives. They didn't know it yet. This is going to be the high point of their lives. This is going to be the turning point. They're, they're going to be changed men after this. And Luke is also reminding us once again that Jesus is deliberately going to Jerusalem. There's, he has no object beyond Jerusalem, by the way. There are no further plans. This is a one-way ticket. I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't, I don't need a ticket back. I'm not coming back. This is the end of the road for Jesus. Verse 29. And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at the, your entering you'll find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. Talk a little bit about Bethany. Bethany is a village about two miles from Jerusalem. It's on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Nobody's really sure where Bethphage is. Obviously, it's very close by. They were suburbs of Jerusalem, sometimes kind of seen as outskirts of a city. You know, when, sometimes when you're approaching a big city, you can't really tell if you're in the city or if you're in a village on the outside. That's kind of what this is like. And so Jesus gives instructions for two of these disciples. We don't know who. I can make guesses, but we don't know who. 
go, they go into the village to find a cult for him. And Luke doesn't tell us what village this is either. Isn't that interesting? We don't know what the village is. Go into the village, whatever village. Uh, although he does mention that it's the one that's over against you. Might have been Bethpage for all I know. I can't be sure. But when you get there, Jesus says you're going to find a cult tied. Now this term cult, as used in Luke, could be either a cult of a horse or a cult of a donkey. We're not really told. Luke doesn't tell us what this is. But Matthew and John, they fill in the blanks here, and they tell us, make it absolutely clear this is the cult of a donkey. This is a donkey's cult. But Luke does tell us something interesting, that nobody has ever ridden this particular donkey before. Nobody's ever ridden this particular donkey. Now, I can only speculate, but I think I have good evidence that the reason that this unused donkey was so important was because of the commands that are in the law. We can look back in the Old Testament law. Let's look back to uh, Numbers chapter 19. I think that's why it was so important that this was a cult that nobody had ever sat on. Numbers 19, verse 2. We're talking about things dedicated to the Lord. This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath spoken, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came a yoke. We're talking about an animal dedicated to the Lord has never worked before. Never had to work. Deuteronomy chapter 21. We're talking about the same thing. Uh, 21 and verse 3, it says, And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, even the elders of the city shall take an heifer which hath not been wrought with and which hath not drawn the yoke. This is a different circumstance, but again, we're talking about things that are dedicated for sacred purposes. They've never been put to a task. They only have one task for their life. As far as this donkey was concerned, we're never, we're never introduced to this donkey again after Jesus rode on him. That was the one thing this donkey was born for, was to bear our Lord into the city. Jesus gives the disciples a password to use if anybody should question their commandeering of this donkey. You know, it's got to look a little strange. A couple of guys walk in, they see a donkey tied up, and they start untying it. I mean, hey, wait a minute. We hang horse thieves in this town. You know, uh, and they're supposed to say, the Lord hath need of him. The Lord hath, sure he does. But let me ask you a question. If you are the guy who sees a couple of other guys stealing a donkey and you question them and they tell you that the Lord hath need of him, what are you going to think? Yeah, most a normal, sane, thinking human being isn't going to believe them, right? Sure, yeah, you're coming with me. Let me call the police. You know? That's, that's more likely. But let's say for an instance that you did believe him. All right? 
let's assume that you did believe him. All right, okay, so the Lord has need of him. All right, who's the Lord? Right, that's right. Your natural thought as a Jew is going to be to think God. You're not, you've probably never heard of Jesus before. You, you might have heard of him. I mean, he was a popular guy at the time. You might have heard of Jesus, but you've never heard of him referred to as the, the Lord before. That's not how he was called. That wasn't it. You and I call him Jesus the Lord, but that's after the fact. People didn't call him the Lord. It would be natural to assume that the Lord would be speaking in God the Father. And that puts a different kind of understanding on it, doesn't it? The Lord had this donkey appointed. God Almighty had this donkey appointed for one task, and that's to carry Jesus, His Son, into the city. Let's drop another clod in the churn. Uh, Verse 33. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose you the colt? So, the exact scenario that I just described to you uh, came true. They, they see two fellows untying a donkey. What in the world do you guys think you're doing? It's not unrealistic what I just pointed out. Notice, it says the owners. There was more than one owner of this donkey. This was a shared donkey. They would have had to have been in agreement for the disciples to be able to simply walk away with their donkey. But notice that the disciples obeyed the instructions. Verses 33 to 34. Well, we just just looked at verse 33. Let's look at 34. And they said, the Lord hath need of them. They didn't sputter. They, they, They said exactly the password Jesus had given them. The disciples obeyed the instructions. And the donkey's owners didn't have any problem releasing the animal to their care. Oh, the Lord has need of them? Fine. Take him. Now, understand one thing with me. If a donkey was shared, these folks must have been dirt poor. These folks must have been dirt poor. Because a donkey would have been like a pickup truck in those days, and not even a particularly good one. If, I mean, if you were trying to do work, you had an ox. We just talked about an ox uh, in Sunday school this morning. Uh, that would have been a nice pickup truck. This would have been a not that nice pickup truck. And it's shared. Apparently these folks are so poor that they shared one donkey between them. Might have been more than two. I don't know how many there were, but there was at least two. But, moving along, I don't want to speculate too much on this. Verse 35 and 36, it says, And they brought him to Jesus. And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they sat Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes on the way. So they put their garments on the animal, obviously making kind of a horse blanket. Notice that Luke doesn't say that Jesus climbed up onto the donkey at that point. Jesus didn't climb onto the donkey. The disciples set Jesus thereon. They took the initiative here. They're enthroning him on this donkey. And as Jesus rode along, 
they put their clothes on the road, clearly making a gesture of a triumphal carpet for Jesus to ride on. You see the picture. Luke doesn't mention palms. Uh, We call it Palm Sunday. The other Gospels mention that they cut branches from palms and they set them on the ground and they were waving them. The word is a lulav. That's that's what they use in, in Israel. It's celebratory. It means you're celebrating something big and important when you're waving lulav. It's kind of like what we read about in 2 Kings. Let's, go, let's turn over to 2 Kings when something similar to this happened. 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13. Because what Jesus is doing here isn't totally unheard of. Second Kings 9 and verse 13. And we're seeing, uh, this is Jehu coming in here. Uh, And they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew with trumpets saying, Jehu is king. So they're laying these, uh, he's coming down, he's descending, announcing himself as the king and they're laying their clothes down on the stairs as he descends. You see, they're doing the same thing for Jesus as he's entering into the city. They're laying their clothes down for him to walk on. Again, Luke doesn't say anything about spreading palm branches on the road, but all the other Gospels do. And we come to verse 37. And it says, And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. (coughs) The whole multitude of the disciples joined in this descent down the Mount of Olives. Must have been a pretty good crowd. And it says that as they went, they began to rejoice. That's why uh, during Sunday school, we opened up this morning's services with joy to the world. We a lot of times think of that as a Christmas song, right? It really was never intended to be written as a Christmas song at all. Joy to the world. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they'd seen. These people had seen some mighty works, hadn't they? I mean, this is the multitude that we've seen following Jesus around. I just read this morning over my coffee, the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men, it might have been closer to 20,000, some people estimate. We're talking a big crowd. They've seen some mighty works. They've seen demoniacs in their right mind. They've seen 5,000 people fed from a little boy's lunch. They've seen dead raised. They've seen all kinds of things happen. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They clearly knew that Jesus had come from God. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what caused all this rejoicing all of a sudden. But Matthew and John, they both mention a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Let's go over there. This is all to fulfill prophecy, you see. Zechariah 9.9. 
prophecy that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee! He is just, and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Why did Jesus ride a colt of a donkey? Why did it have to be a colt of an ass? To fulfill prophecy. He couldn't just walk in there. He had to ride that donkey. Now, this group clearly saw Jesus' entry into the city in the light of that prophecy. Zion's king is going to ride a colt of a donkey. And they're greeting him as the king. Well, let me point out something. A king riding on a donkey would be pretty distinctive, wouldn't it? A king riding on a donkey, unusual. A donkey would be something that a man of peace would ride. A merchant, maybe. A priest, perhaps. Like Balaam in the book of Numbers. We saw Balaam riding on a very, probably the most famous donkey in all the Old Testament. Balaam riding on his donkey. And donkey ended up talking to him. Go ahead and read the story yourself. I'm not doing it now. Uh, But not a conqueror. This isn't the sort of thing that a conqueror would ride. A king would ride on a horse. They look a little more majestic, don't they? Donkeys look pretty shabby. A horse is more distinctive. But Zechariah's prophecy is about the Messiah coming as the Prince of Peace. Hang on to that thought. We're about to come back to it in just a minute. The Prince of Peace. See, the disciples from Galilee are coming to Jerusalem by way of Jericho. We just pointed out that he just left Jericho for the Passover. And they knew that Jesus had done some great works. They've seen him. They've been watching Jesus for quite a while now, several years, some of them. And they've been waiting for him to proclaim himself as the Messiah that they've been waiting for. They've been expecting this. This has got to be the Messiah. Have you seen him? He raised the dead. Not once, not twice. He's raised the dead over and over. He's healed people. Lame men, blind men, deaf men. He's done all kinds. Lepers. There's nothing can stop this guy. Surely he's the Messiah. And look, he's coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This is the Messiah. They've been expecting this. Jesus is making it clear. He's fulfilling all the Messianic prophecies right now. They apparently didn't quite catch on that he's also showing that he's fulfilling the role of the Prince of Peace. He's not a conquering hero this time. He's the Prince of Peace. They wanted a Messiah. Here's one. Verse 38. saying... Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All four Gospels tell us that the people cried, Blessed. And that they, all four Gospels say that, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
That comes from Psalm 118.26. We don't have to turn there. We just said it already. Uh, But only Luke and John say that they called Jesus the King. I think that's significant. I think it's particularly interesting. Brother Fisher's been going through the book of Matthew. Matthew's talking about the kingdom, talking about the king. Matthew does not mention Jesus as the king. I think that's very interesting. I'm not going to steal his thunder. John points out that he's the king of Israel. Mark uh, mentions a kingdom, but not the king. Nevertheless, the crowd wants a king, and they got one. And Luke says that they also cried out, peace in heaven. Peace in heaven. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Luke is the only one that tells us that the Pharisees tried to get Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Some people will complain if you hang them with a new rope, won't they? These people couldn't... Look at this celebration. Everybody recognizes it's the Messiah coming. And the Pharisees, can't you get these people to quiet down? Just out of principle, they didn't want Jesus to be announced as the Messiah. They certainly didn't want to have to use force to stop this demonstration, though. They don't dare. There's very little hope of them appealing to the people to get them to stop. So they asked Jesus, hey, would you please get these people to calm down? And Jesus responds by saying that this shouting is inevitable. You can't stop this. It's going to happen. If the people stopped, then the stones were going to cry out. Which, by the way, is another prophecy. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 11. For the stone shall cry out of the wall, and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. He says, you can't even keep the stones quiet. Did you know... Here's just a side note, just a freebie. Did you know that all of creation is made for one purpose, and that's to praise the Lord? All of creation. You look at the bush, the trees, the rocks, you, me, we're all made to praise the Lord, whether we acknowledge it or not. And then we see Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, which, as I say, is unique to the Gospel of Luke. And that's really the reason why I turned here. Only Luke shows, uh, knew what this celebration really meant. Verse 41 to 42. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. 
This lament took place near the city of Jerusalem, not quite in it. And it's recorded again, only in Luke. But again, also, Luke doesn't tell us exactly where. We're descending down the Mount of Olives, so I'm expecting about probably halfway down. It's where you got the best view of the city anyway. And this lament is in pretty sharp contrast with the joy of the crowd, isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? The crowd is cheering, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's our Messiah. We're laying down our garments in front of him. And what does Jesus do? Does Jesus celebrate with him? No. He stops and he starts to cry. And he says, you don't even realize. And this word wept here is a very strong word. We're not talking about a little sniffle here. This is a good cry. Jesus here is sobbing over these folks' lost opportunity. These folks don't even know the things which belong unto thy peace, it says. And you know what's really ironic about it? There's a couple of things. One is, we talked about it, and I told you to hang on to this thought. This is, according to Zechariah, the Prince of Peace coming. And Jesus says, you don't even recognize the things which belong unto thy peace. There's another irony here. Jerusalem is the city of peace. The people who lived in the city of peace with the Prince of Peace coming to the city of peace didn't even know what it is that makes peace possible. Sounds like the world today, doesn't it? The only way for true peace is to have peace with God first. A right relationship with Him is the only way for peace in any other relationship. And that was the bit that the folks in Jerusalem didn't realize. And that fact is what drove Jesus to tears. Jesus says that from here on out, these things are going to be hid from your eyes. Lost opportunity. Verses 43 to 44. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children with thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem which many of the people who are alive right here at that time were going to live to see. The destruction of the city was inevitable. And Jesus describes the siege, complete with the trenches that the Romans were going to dig, and the city being totally surrounded. You can read about that. Let's read about it in Isaiah 29, verse 3. Isaiah predicted it way back. Do you see how much prophecy is being fulfilled in this just entering into the city? Isaiah 29, and verse 3 God talking, well, I'll back all the way up to verse 1. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. That's Jerusalem, by the way. And ye year to year let them kill sacrifices. 
Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp around thee round about, and I will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise forts against thee. And thou shalt be brought down, and shall speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be as low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit out of the dust, and thy speech shall be whispered out of the dust. Jesus says that the enemy is going to lay thee even with the ground, and thy children with thee. It's complete overthrow. Not only was the city going to be captured, but it would be utterly destroyed. But as we're looking at this, let me read it again. I want one thing for you to pay attention to. For the day shall come upon thee, when thine enemies will cast a trench about thee, and compass thee around, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children with thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. <clears throat> Notice how many times Jesus uses thee or thy. Ten times in two verses. This is very personal. I bet Jesus was looking around at the crowd, each and every one of them, trying to take them in. Thee and thy. You, are you paying attention to me? He's going to lay thee down and thy children. Because you didn't know the time of thy visitation. The time of thy visitation. Now this could be any kind of visitation, by the way. This could be a visitation for, I mean, Jesus is coming. Jesus, the Lord, the King, the Prince of Peace is coming to Jerusalem. He could come for a couple of reasons. It could be either for blessing or it could be for cursing. Clearly, in this context, Jesus is referring to a messianic visit. He's coming to bless them, but you didn't even recognize it. But notice one other thing. The ignorance is no excuse. Ignorance is no excuse. If you don't recognize that Jesus is the Savior, that's no excuse. He's still the Savior, whether you acknowledge it or not. These people had plenty of opportunity to accept Jesus as the Christ, to accept Jesus as the Messiah, and they missed their chance. And that is what brought tears to Jesus' eyes. I pray that you don't miss your own chance. I know a lot of you, and I'm confident that you have taken advantage of that. But I hope you don't miss that chance, if I don't know you as well as I think I know you. Which kind of brings us right into our communion time. This is the first Sunday of the month. And traditionally, we celebrate our communion. So I'll have Jake come up here and join me here. And we'll just skip a couple of pages ahead in Luke to another section. Just three or four days later, and Jesus is meeting with some of the uh, disciples, and he's in the upper room, still in the same book, Luke chapter 22. 
Particularly, I want to look at this scene here. Verse 14, I'm going to read uh, verse 14 to 20. It says, And when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks, and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. 